Hi, and welcome to the Midlife Feast, the podcast for women who are hungry for more in this season of life. I'm your host, Dr. Jen Salib Huber. I'm an intuitive eating dietitian and naturopathic doctor, and I help women manage menopause without dieting and food rules. Come to my table, listen and learn from me, trusted guest experts in women's health, and interviews with women just like you. Each episode brings to the table juicy conversations designed to help you feast on midlife. And if you're looking for more information about menopause nutrition and intuitive eating, check out the Midlife Feast community, my monthly membership that combines my no-nonsense approach that you all love to nutrition with community so that you can learn from me and others who can relate to the cheers and challenges of midlife. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Midlife Feast. My guest today is Christy Harrison, who almost doesn't need an introduction because I think that most people who listen to my podcast will be familiar with Christy's work. Uh, Christy was one of my first, you know, mentors, I guess, in this online or anti-diet space around intuitive eating. And especially as a dietitian, I found her first podcast, Food Psych, um, fascinating and her books, Anti-Diet and the Wellness Trap, and now followed by her other podcast, Rethinking Wellness, have just continued these critical thinking conversations about not just food and nutrition, but around morality of food and dieting and diet culture and the problems with wellness culture and the systemic problems with food culture and how we need to really just move beyond this idea of food as the be all and end all and trying to look at it more holistically. And as we talk about towards the end, kind of moving from wellness to well-being. So have a listen to this podcast. It was a really wonderful conversation. And I think that you will enjoy not just kind of the details of what we're talking about, but the the bigger picture conversation that we were having about, you know, what really needs to change in order to help us be well. Hi, Christy. Welcome to the Midlife Feast. Hi, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so we're both dietitians and um, you were one of the probably the first professional kind of person that I connected with um, when I was learning to become an intuitive eater and then studying to become an intuitive eating counselor. And I know that for lots of people, you're kind of the first point of contact, either through your books or your podcasts. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you went from dietitian to non-diet dietitian and when maybe you first started to realize that there was a problem with diet culture. Mm, such a good question. My path to becoming a dietitian in the first place was pretty winding. My first career and sort of still, you know, second career or uh, primary career, whatever, is as a journalist. Um, and I had my own eating disorder and disordered eating when I was starting out as a journalist, which attracted me to writing about food, nutrition, and health. And like, I was just, you know, obsessed with those topics and wanting to master them and also not eating enough. So I was obsessed with food and interested in writing about that. Um, and so when I went back to school to become a dietitian, it was with this idea of, you know, deepening the knowledge that I already had from reporting on food and nutrition and becoming kind of my own expert so that I, I could write books or I could, you know, write columns and things like that from a point of expertise rather than always having to just call dietitians and get them to weigh in. And I was at the time really in the sort of Michael Pollan camp and, you know, mm -hmm. Mary Nestle, Eric Schlosser, this whole idea of like, it's sort of like a proto clean eating, um, early wellness, you know, 
not early iteration, but one iteration of wellness culture, this idea of like farm to table and sustainability and eat food, not too much, mostly plants, you know, that whole credo. So it was very, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time was struggling with orthorexia and was obsessed Mm -hmm. with, with, you know, quote unquote, clean food or sustainable food or whatever from that um, place. And, so I was really in it, and I believed that going back to school to become a dietitian, I also got a master's in public health nutrition. Like I was going to try to, you know, save the world from the scourge of fatness. You know, that's really what I what I believed at the time. I obviously now see how stigmatizing that is, um, but there was such a huge movement at the time too. This was like early two thousands. You know, mm-hmm. um, this this movement at the time to like you know the quote unquote war on obesity was really raging at that moment. So. Um, that's kind of where I was coming from when I went back to school to become a dietitian. And through my work, I, I always worked part-time or full-time through school. You know, I was doing like freelance journalism on the side, but then I also worked in city facilities, the, the city department of health. I had a number of different jobs there. And the first job I had there was, uh, first I did an internship, but then I did a, a summer job that was uh, nutrition education at farmer's markets. And at, at that job, I started to see like the people who were coming back again and again and my like kind of star students, you know, the people who really connected with what I was teaching and doing would start telling me things like, oh, yeah, I did such and such and I, you know, didn't eat this and I ate a lot of that and I walked X miles and blah, blah, blah. And I started to feel a little bit uneasy because at the time I was personally in sort of early recovery from disordered eating. I was working with a therapist, had been working with a therapist for a long time, but finally started addressing my eating issues and read the book Intuitive Eating and started putting that into practice in my own life. So I was starting to let go of a lot of the rigidity and starting to see how rigid I had been previously and, you know, had a few experiences in school as well. My dietetics training, seeing like, okay, the weight that I was before, you know, there's no way to attain that weight without disordered means and I'm not going to do that anymore. And so like, you know, starting to come Mm -hmm. to a sense of recovery for myself. So when I saw these people at the farmer's markets who were like, yeah, I'm doing this, this, and this, I was like, oh, that sounds a little bit like what I was doing in my most rigid moments, you know? And I wasn't sure what to do with that. But I think that was the genesis of this transition to, you know, non-diet and anti-diet dietitian. Um, and from there, I started. I was. I then started other jobs at the city, and um, was doing a lot of like nutrient analysis and like working in spreadsheets and literature reviews and a lot of like very sciencey, very numbersy things, which is definitely a part of me that I love. But I was missing. I'm. I'm a creative person at heart. I'm a writer. I'm. You know, it's always what I wanted to do. So I had like this missing creative itch. You know, this this creative urge that wasn't being filled. So I started. Food Psych, my podcast, to try to like fill that void basically. Um, <laughs> and started talking to people about their relationships with food. And at the time, was at the the sort of internship part of my dietetics training when I was getting uh, experience in different, um, you know, facilities and spaces and stuff. And I uh, decided to get some training in eating disorders. And I did a rotation at an eating disorder facility, pretty quickly fell in love with the, the discipline and, you know, with, the, I mean, with the, that area of study um, and that area of, you know, that, that field of nutrition and started going to conferences and just, you know, doing trainings and all the things and kind of like doing everything I could to um, learn everything I could about eating disorders. And when it came time to start my private practice, I was decided that I wanted to focus primarily on disordered eating. And 
from there, you know, I still wasn't like fully anti-diet and health at every size, but I was starting to get those messages from my trainings and starting to see that those were considered best practices. And I got Mm -hmm. certified as an intuitive eating counselor. Um, And I was still, you know, sometimes seeing clients in larger bodies who wanted to lose weight and that dissonance of like, okay, well, I do this over here with my eating disorder clients, but here's this person who wants to lose weight. And like my dietetics training says that I should help them do that. But my eating disorder training really is in conflict with that. You know, that again, cognitive dissonance sort of drove me to do more research and understand, you know, kind of come to a philosophy of my own where I decided, you know what, I'm not going to offer weight management or weight loss for anyone because I think it's a huge risk for disordered eating. And and these people in larger bodies who are coming to see me who want to lose weight, many of them have disordered eating too. Maybe it's subclinical. It's not meeting the criteria for an eating disorder, but it's nonetheless disruptive to their lives. And if I put them on a diet, I think it's just going to make them more obsessed with food. So, you know, that I think was really the pivotal time for me of, of becoming fully uh, anti-diet and weight inclusive. Wow. I didn't realize we were just talking before we hit record that we're not that far off in age. I'm, I'm later 40s. I think you said you're early 40s. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that there were so many parallels, which I think really reflect the experience of anybody who goes through a dietetics program. Um, you know, it's, it's very reductionistic in so many ways. Um, and I think in in some ways it needs to be like, you need to learn those foundations and those basics, but there's, there's not a lot of nuance in how we're taught to look at food. It's, it's very discreet. And I so relate to everything you're saying about Michael Pollan. I remember somebody gave me um, one of his first books and I, I can't remember which one it was, but it felt holistic at first. Like it felt mm-hmm. less restrictive, but it was so moralistic um, that when I look back on it now, I almost feel more uncomfortable about aligning with that than I do diet culture. Cause at least diet culture isn't pretending to try and be something that it's not like, it's very Mm -hmm. clear about what it is. Yeah. Well, I think the waters are getting muddied now. (laughs) There's so much cross pollination of diet and wellness culture and and those things getting so entangled, but yes, like the above board sort of like lose weight for your health or lose weight and look great. Like, I feel like that is, easier to recognize in a lot of ways and the the Michael Pollan stuff and then sort of what's come out of that too, like the clean eating and the, you know, now like gut health and all of these different iterations of kind of the same thing. It's like so much sneakier and so much harder to understand that, you know, what it is is really still rooted in diet culture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember, I can't remember exactly what year it was. I think it was 2017 that I officially closed my practice to weight loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people would ask me why, I would say, because I don't feel like it's ethical anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I can give people the tools and information that is about pursuing intentional weight loss as a proxy for health that doesn't feel moral or ethical anymore. And that's, I think, a really hard thing for people to understand. Many people appreciate it and do, but I think that that separation between weight and health is is the hardest. A lot of people can see the problems with diet culture. They can see the problems with wellness culture, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I think it's a lot harder for them to see that weight as a proxy for health is really the root of the problem, mm. um, whatever way you get to it. So I want to talk about clean eating because I love talking about clean eating and what it is and what it isn't. Um, I think that for a lot of people, clean eating has felt like a safer place to land, a more welcoming place to land, because 
it doesn't necessarily prescribe what to eat or what not to eat as long as it's, you know, meets all of these other criteria. Why do you think clean eating became so popular? What is it that like people identified with that made it feel like a good choice? I think it's a couple of things. I think at that time, you know, this was like probably early 2010s, I think that clean eating really took off. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, we were we were kind of like post-diet culture being so above board. I think around 2000-ish, it started to morph and shapeshift into this other thing. It started to like cloak itself in the language of wellness and um, and, you know, this notion of the quote unquote obesity epidemic made it feel like much higher stakes and, you know, that weight loss was for your health. It wasn't just an aesthetic pursuit. And so there was a lot of like moralization built into that. Um, and so I think it's sort of like clean eating tapped into a lot of that, you know, the sort of like shift in marketing of diet culture and the fact that people were now like orienting around, oh, yeah, I want to be healthy. I want to do this for my health. I need to lose weight, not to like just look good and, you know, fit into whatever, but actually to like take care of my health. And they were getting that message from doctors and from family members and people around them and from, you know, Michelle Obama and the White House and all of that stuff. Right. So. I think yeah. that was a piece of it. Um, and I think, too, like the we can't underestimate the influence of the farm to table movement on the culture, you know, of Michael Pollan and, you know, all the sort of chefs who followed in his footsteps. I mean, I worked at Gourmet Magazine from 2007 to 2009, and like everybody was doing farm to table. All the chefs were like, you know, interested in that, whether it was even, even chefs who weren't sort of like known for that. It was just like all about like sourcing and farmer's markets and, you know, the quality of ingredients and stuff like that. So that kind of thinking, I think, really permeated the culture and made people want to, want to avoid processed foods and think processed foods were bad. And, you know, it, it started to really have this um, kind of moralizing impact. And I think the the idea of like choosing sustainable foods and knowing your farmer and all of this stuff was like also kind of a class thing, right? It was, it's obviously something that is much more attainable to people who have disposable income and time on their hands to think about such things. It's not something that is a concern for, you know, working class folks or folks who are struggling economically, who are trying to make ends meet, mo working multiple jobs. Like, you know, I think it's it became sort of like a way of um, middle and upper middle class and, and upper class classes to kind of distinguish themselves in a way, you know, this these concerns about food. I mean, scholars have written about this more eloquently than I'm saying it, but, <laughs> you know, that it became like it's not quite conspicuous consumption anymore because conspicuous consumption is is not really a um, – a good signifier of class anymore for various reasons, mm -hmm. but now it's like inconspicuous consumption, it's called. And forget who coined that term, but, um, yeah. you know, this idea of like just the small choices you make, the small everyday choices to, to do the organic thing or the sustainable thing or whatever and make food from scratch instead of getting processed food and all that. Um, so I think clean eating like really tapped into all of that too. And then the other thing is like diet culture has always had a moral – moralizing element to it and wellness culture sort of built built on top of that foundation so like the core principles or sort of structures of diet culture i i define as you know worshiping thinness and equating it to moral health and moral virtue promoting weight loss as a means of attaining higher status 
demonizing certain foods while lionizing other foods and uh, oppressing people who don't match its supposed picture of health and well-being. And so, you know, that piece of like demonizing some foods and elevating others, that's the part I think that clean eating also really tapped into. And, you know, that was a pre-existing thing in diet culture. We've always kind of, you know, for generations thought of food as good and bad. The, the cultural message has always been there's certain foods that are healthy, certain foods that are unhealthy, certain foods that are fattening, certain foods that are slimming, like whatever language of the time was being used, there's always been this dichotomy between foods. And so I think clean eating just sort of tapped right into that uh, impulse in in Amer- you know, in diet culture and American culture and Western culture, where it's like, you know, this this notion of categorizing foods into good and bad. So now it was clean versus, you know, no one really said this, but dirty, right? It was like that's yeah. the implication. Um, and I think that that just made a lot of sense to people who, especially who were steeped in the farm to table movement and stuff, being like, Yeah, ew, processed foods, gross. Like, get that away from me. Yeah. And I remember, I think you're right, it being 2010. So my oldest daughter was born in 2007, and my youngest two were born in 2010. Mm. And at the time, you know, clean eating, the movement, the morality, all of it was very much alive and well. And if you had young children, especially, there was so much pressure on parents to provide not just like clean and organic, but like the perfect food. Um, and baby led weaning, which I think is great and, and mm-hmm. very in line with, with intuitive eating in many ways, but w- had become a bit of a moral high ground too, that if yeah. you were, you know, clean eating and organic and crunchy and granola enough, you also did baby led weaning. And that was like everything that you needed to do to be a good parent. Mm-hmm. And what I started to see over time was that there was this like presentation of orthorexia amongst parents that it wasn't so much concern about their own food choices. It was this concern over the choices they were making for their children. Yeah. Um, and would see, you know, I, I remember one family in particular that would not sometimes be able to even decide what to eat if they weren't able to source it locally, organically grass fed, like they would not eat meat mm-hmm. if they could not find it under those circumstances. And and it was really based on trying to make like the cleanest choice for their kids. Um, and it, and I don't, I don't know that there's an easy way out of that because when I work with adults, as I'm sure you do, there's often still this like guilt of like, well, shouldn't I choose the, mm-hmm. the clean choice? Isn't that still the better one, even if we're not calling it clean and, and to get parents to see that for their kids Um, I think it was one of the reasons why I feel like clean eating is like a Gen X thing. I know it's not just a Gen X thing, but I feel like Generation X was really subjected to that Mm -hmm. as a, as a moral compass for eating. And it affected not just us, but you know, how we raised our kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had kids later in life, so I have an almost two-year-old now and, um, it's, I, I still see that moralization and that sort of lionization of baby led weaning, some of the major like Instagram accounts for baby led weaning are huge and have such influence. And, you know, I won't name any names, but um, I think have done a lot of, you know, a lot of good in, in some ways in terms of spreading messages of intuitive eating and division of responsibility. But sometimes the way that they're doing that is 
is very orthorexic and very sort of lionizing of these quote unquote clean foods, right? And like, and yeah. sort of making parents feel shamed for not sending their kids to school with these bento boxes full of, you know, different kinds of produce. And um, that's just not the reality for so many of us. I mean, I send my kid with a bento box full of like whatever she'll eat, you know? Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I think incredibly um, shaming and sort of makes parents feel like they're doing bad and, and, you know, makes them feel guilty if they're not eating in that particular way. And I think, you know, there are ways of doing intuitive eating, of turning it into a diet. There are ways of doing Ellen Satter's division of responsibility where you turn it into a diet where it's like, you know, I only choose the most sustainable, organic, whole foods for my child, unprocessed, no sugar, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, then they can eat everything they want of that. But if I'm giving them, you know, quote unquote, bad processed foods, then, you know, that negates the whole thing. And that's like, you know, they're not going to be able to be attuned eaters or something. Um, so I think it, it still very much is a pressure on parents. And yeah, it's not necessarily called clean eating, clean eating anymore. I think a lot of the people who kind of led that clean eating movement have now renounced the term but many of them and of course many others are still doing this thing of like you know demonizing processed foods and lionizing quote unquote whole plant based sugar free stuff and it's the same thing you know and it and it felt like such a a bait and switch in so many ways um you know like we wouldn't buy the regular Cheerios, but we would buy the overpriced organic Cheerios that were really <laughs> just the same thing, but in a different box, mm -hmm. um, you know, without realizing that like we were sacrificing satisfaction, we were devoting time, money and resources to things that didn't really have that return on the investment. Um, it yeah. wasn't going to do what we thought it was going to do. Um, I've shared before on this podcast about my, my oldest daughter, when she was in uh, grade one was doing this activity in school and the, one of the other parents that was a friend of mine was volunteering and she sent me a message and she said, Oh my goodness, it's so funny. We're doing this counting thing with fruit loops. And Mavis, my daughter's name was laughing hysterically because she just kept eating them. She was like <laughs> so excited to eat these fruit loops because she'd never had them. Yeah. And it was it like that moment, I still tear up when I think and talk about it, but that moment mm -hmm. was like, oh, these rules that I'm putting in place are not doing what I want them to do. Because I think yeah. everybody goes into it thinking it's going to make things easier for my kids if I set them up with this great foundation of, you know, good, healthy, organic food, not realizing mm -hmm. that if we don't just give them access and choice, um, you know, it's it's not going to make it easy for them. It's going to make it harder. Totally. So yeah, I think the clean eating movement really did a number on many people, but especially those of us who are in our forties now, I think it was a hard one for us to climb out of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's continued to just morph and shape shift, you know, it's like, it may not be called clean eating anymore, but now people are obsessed with gut health and, you know, yeah. feeding the microbiome, the right, quote unquote, right foods and stuff like that, which are of course, you know, whole, minimally processed, no sugar, no whatever, you know, it's, it's the same types of foods that are being lauded. It's just under a different label now. So let's move on to wellness culture. So um, one of the quotes from your book um, that I loved, by the way, um, Wellness Trap, was that wellness culture's views on foods are a gateway into a belief system where every product is a potential threat, every lifestyle choice a matter of life and death. Why do you think that 
we're so attracted to these fear-based messages. Why do you think that that's something, you know, that we feel like is going to motivate us? I think there are some really real reasons why people fall into this. You know, I think um, there's a lot of fear and fear mongering about like what's in our food and what's in our, you know, the chemicals, quote unquote chemicals lurking in everyday products and Um, I think, you know, in reality, we're all made up of 100% chemicals. Everything in the world is chemicals. But there's this chemophobia, this fear of chemicals that I think has been instilled by, you know, a lot of people who have a, who who stand to profit from that fear, right? It's like, you know, don't buy these conventional products, buy my special natural products, and you'll be safe, you know, and so trumping up fear about about conventional stuff, I think, is a way to sell alternative things. And so there is a real industry around that. You know, there's a real industry around not just alternative medicine, but like alternative products and, you know, sustainable food, I think, is great in a lot of ways. But I think there is a certain type of marketing of sustainable food that's like, do you really know what's in your food? And like these, oh. this other store, I've literally seen like grocery stores advertising with this kind of messaging where it's like this other store might say their food is organic, but how do you really know at our oh store? We, we, you know, it's like it just preys on people's fears. And I think, you know, we we don't have time in this hyper-capitalist world that we live in. Everybody is so busy and nobody has time to like – really understand, you know, who's like protecting us and looking out for us and sort of the agencies that are in charge of that and, um, you know, understand like that what's in your products, if even if you can't pronounce it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. You know, I think there's there's a a lot of people just really don't know a lot of that stuff. And so when someone comes along who's charismatic and who sort of taps into this sense of like, oh yeah, I don't really know what's in this stuff. And oh my God, this could be harming and this could be toxic and this could be really bad for the environment. You know, I think it's natural for people to think, okay, well, I should just, you know, get away from anything that's like industrial and manufactured and processed and move toward things that are, you know, supposedly more natural and more gentle and stuff. And the reality is that, you know, especially when it comes to like foods and supplements and or you know supplements and medicine and things like that um what is quote unquote natural there really is no regulation on that term first of all so like people can just slap the word natural on anything it doesn't have the same regulations and standards as something like organic um but then also you know it it can be used to sell things that aren't necessarily any different or any better than the conventional products but at a premium you know that it can sort of be used to justify paying more for something because you're you're getting supposedly getting peace of mind even though you you don't always really know that something that's labeled natural really is you know and what does that even mean yeah there's a perception that it's value added mm-hmm. um, when that is not objectively always true yeah i think that the you know you mentioned about like you know something is going to be toxic and sugar came to mind about how like sugar went from being something that was just quote like not good for you to being toxic and you know it's going to kill you and it's going to cause all these things and you know when i'm working with people and trying to get them to like dip their toes into this reality where every bite of food isn't going to either kill or cure them it's messages like that that are the hardest to let go of Um, Or for the, you know, for them to see that like no one food is going to, you know, cause all of these awful things or save you from all these awful things. Mm -hmm. And that to me is like one of the, you know, it's been 20, 
oh my God, almost 30 years since I started studying nutrition. Um, and that really has been the shift is, is this belief that it's one of the shifts that I've noticed anyway, is that this belief that like, there is a, a way of eating that can save you from everything. Mm-hmm. And there's a way of eating that is going to like knock you dead, you know, in a matter of minutes. And there's so much fear around that, that it's so hard for people to just see food as food totally, um, and not so loaded. Totally. Yeah. And I think this idea of like sugar as uniquely toxic is really interesting and, and other types of foods too is quote unquote toxic is really interesting because when you look at the actual science, first of all, nutrition science is mostly based on observational studies. You know, we don't yeah. do a lot of randomized controlled trials of like put someone on this particular diet for five years and compare it to someone who's put on this other diet for five years or a control group who doesn't change or whatever. You know, that kind of research is extremely expensive and hard to do and, you know, people make their own choices. And so you really can't do a lot of that research well without spending a bajillion dollars. So I get why (laughs) there's not a lot of it. But also, I think it's really problematic that we then rely on these observational studies where you know, they try to control for confounding variables in some cases, but not in all. And actually, I I see a lot of nutrition research that doesn't even control for basic things like socioeconomic status, education, you know, geographic location, stuff like that, um, which those things can absolutely influence how people eat and their health outcomes independent of the food. You know, it's like if you're living in poverty and you might be eating a lot of processed food because you're just, that's what you can afford. And then you also have a bunch of health implications, you know, health impacts happening um, that are because of, you know, not because of the food you're eating, but because of living in poverty and not having access to healthcare and, you know, living in a, a place with, you know, more air pollution and not clean water and things like that. Like, you know, the social determinants of health are such a bigger factor in population level health outcomes than things like how we eat and how we move our bodies. And so I I don't think the general public understands that. I don't think a lot of journalists who report on this stuff understand that. And so they, they look at these studies that aren't controlling for confounding variables and that are saying, you know, people who eat more of X food, you know, people who eat more sugar have higher rates of heart disease or whatever. Therefore, sugar causes heart disease. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, we can't, we can't, infer causation from these, you know, correlational studies. And even looking at the data and those correlational studies, there's so much nuance to it. It's like the people who, you know, the study really might show, okay, eating more sugar is associated with higher levels of heart disease, you know, as you go higher in the, the, sort of uh, quintiles of consumption, you might have higher levels of heart disease. But, you know, if you look at the, the people in the lowest quintile of consumption for, for sugar, they're not eating no sugar. They're actually eating like sugar consistently throughout the day or, you know, dessert every day and things like that. They're not um, these sort of like sugar-free warriors <laughs> that, you know, we're sort <laughs> of made to think we have to be. Um, yeah. And the people who are in the highest quintiles of consumption are people who are eating massive, massive amounts of sugar or consuming massive amounts of sugar in various forms that, you know, might be associated with things like poverty, things like not having access to food, also things like binge eating disorder or other eating disorders where we don't actually have data that controls for the presence of eating disorders. And so that's a huge confounding factor because a lot of people struggle with that and, you know, eat large amounts of sugar or whatever else because they're restricting and then binging. Well, that in and of itself, that, you know, that restrict binge cycling and binge eating can in and of itself have health 
you know, can cause health problems um, independent of what a person's actually eating. So I think when we actually dig into the nuances of the science, it becomes a lot less clear that like sugar causes cancer or sugar is toxic or whatever the headline, you know, wants you to believe. It's actually, well, we have some data that show an association, but it doesn't control for these things that might be explaining the association. There's probably some other reasons why we see higher levels of disease in people who eat more sugar or more of whatever nutrient is being demonized. Absolutely. So well said. Um, and such an important point about the research too, that, you know, so much of the research that we have in nutrition for any outcome is observational just because of the nature of how complicated it is. It's not like a drug trial where you can control the drug and the placebo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the it has to be applicable to real world conditions. And if you're providing all the food for people and cooking it for them and giving it to them, that's not a real world condition either. So even if Mm -hmm. you control those conditions, you can't always generalize it to the real world. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? That we want these headlines, like we want these like rules that we can cling on to, um, to, to make it easier. Like we're all just trying to make decisions and we want to make them easily, but that information I don't think makes it easier for most people. We've been talking about in my community about sugar and carbohydrates and undieting beliefs about them this month. And it surprised so many people to learn that the glucose we get from fruit and the glucose that we get from candy end up in the same place. Mm -hmm. And that when your body is using that glucose, it doesn't know where it came from. Yeah. You know, and so because there's so much um, fear and misinformation around like added sugars are so bad for you. Well, is it the added sugars or is it the fact that maybe some of those foods aren't as nutrient dense? Like maybe they're lacking fiber and protein and that we need to focus on adding those in instead of like cutting out all the things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's so much misinformation out there. I really appreciate your perspective on that. So let's shift gears into kind of what you call wellness to well-being, which I loved, by the way. And, you know, so much one of the unique factors of being uh, a non-diet dietitian who works primarily with people in midlife is that it's not just about not dieting. When we get to this stage of life, we are often starting to notice changes in our health, might be starting to have conversations around not just what our body looks like, but also what it feels, you know, how we feel in our bodies and just health in general around like heart health and things might start showing up. And it can be really challenging for people to prioritize their health in a non-diet way. And mm-hmm. so I love that you kind of had this framework of like wellness to well-being. So what do we need to do to define that or redefine that? Yeah, so I define well-being as just, you know, tr- a truly holistic measure of of you know, it's it's basically what wellness wants to be, right? It's like wellness positions itself as this holistic thing that takes into account all aspects of a person's life. But in practice, wellness has become just about food and nutrition and and exercise and supplements. You know, it's all about the physical. It's not about, it's not really about mental health because it's not accounting for how these sort of prescriptions uh, affect people's mental health and their relationship with food and their bodies and all of that stuff. So it's not... Um, truly holistic in that sense. It also doesn't take into account social determinants of health and, you know, all the population level reasons why people might suffer and have, you know, poor health outcomes that don't have anything to do with their individual choices. And so I think well-being, I, I have this 
you know, notion of well-being is something that can encompass all of those things that wellness leaves out and that can sort of look at, you know, population level health and, and um, individual like mental health as part of the equation. Um, and I think we we would do well to, you know, it's not just about individual choices. I think as a society, we really need to start attending more to the social determinants of health and the reasons why so many people struggle and have poor health outcomes that have nothing to do with their individual choices. And genetics is a huge component as well. You know, people, some people do everything they possibly can to the point of orthorexia and extreme dieting and, you know, really detrimental behaviors for their mental well-being and really their overall health too, um, and still end up with, you know, health outcomes that they were trying to avoid, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, uh -huh. whatever, um, through no fault of their own, just because that was genetically you know, something that they were, were going to have anyway. Um, and so I think it's, we really need to stop blaming people and making people feel responsible, solely responsible for everything that happens to them health-wise and start talking about, you know, the, the cultural and social conditions, the socioeconomic conditions that um, create health disparities for so many people. And, you know, ha giving people access to quality, compassionate, evidence-based care that everyone deserves, you know, and, and to not have that be a barrier to um, well-being. I think, you know, at the individual level, we can start to um, let go of diet culture beliefs and wellness culture beliefs that make us feel like we have to, you know, worry about everything that goes into our mouth and obsess about food and obsess about weight you know, heal our relationships with food and our bodies so that we can start to focus on the truly holistic stuff, you know, mental well-being, right? Yeah. Thinking about um, the coping mechanisms and ways that we can sort of achieve emotional uh, well-being and, and, you know, not be so obsessed and driven and perfectionistic all the time because that has certainly negative health outcomes. Um, you know, thinking about the quality of community and connection between people, you know, loneliness and social social isolation and disconnection are two uh, huge risk factors for poor health and and can be, you know, in, in the literature have been shown to be bigger risk factors than body size and then what you eat. Um, and so I think, you know, that is a really important piece is, is creating social connections, um, finding a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, you know, developing community ties that are not so weak that, you know, they, they can be broken by um, distance or, you know, internet drama or things like that, but actually <laughs> giving people, you know, helping people um, develop the kinds of, you know, important social structures that they, they need to support them. Um, all of that is really complicated and difficult work and, you know, is not something that can be achieved in a like 15 minute doctor visit or whatever. I think it's, um, something that needs a, a, a reimagining of the healthcare system to prioritize that, you know. Um, but I think yeah. we would all be a lot better off if we stopped being made to feel responsible for our own health and health outcomes and, you know, made to feel like, I mean, because this idea of wellness too is always about like optimizing. There's always more you could be doing. <laughs> There's always more, you know, stuff and protocols and diets and supplements that you could be taking or trying and you never feel like you fully arrived, you know? And I think that sense of like, there's always something more I need to do creates a lot of guilt and a lot of shame when you fall short of that, you know, unrealistic ideal. And so I think we need to just 
stop thinking about wellness in those terms and start thinking in a much more self-compassionate way about well-being. I love all of that. And everything that you described is what we're what we have the capacity to do when we're able to step out of diet culture and wellness culture. We have the capacity to make the connections, to move because it's enjoyable and, and in ways that we enjoy without feeling like it's an obligation or that we have a moral obligation to do it. Like it there's just so much space that's created when you can just let go of the rules that aren't serving you. That's right. So thank you for all of that. So I'll end by saying that this has been an incredible conversation and thank you so much for taking the time and we'll have all of the resources um, for both of your books and anything else that you have to share with listeners. But I'd love to ask you the question that I ask everyone, which is what do you think the missing ingredient in midlife is? Mm, Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and for all the great questions. Um, you know, this is interesting because as we were talking about, I'm I'm like in early midlife. So I'm, you know, my early 40s. I haven't had a lot of midlife experience yet. But um, for me right now, I think the missing ingredient is balance. Um, not in a sense of like everything has to be perfectly balanced all the time because that's not realistic, but a sense of like, you know, having having the support that I need to have my work life and home life be manageable both, you know, and to have everything sort of um, functioning in a way that doesn't feel so chaotic. And I, I think part of that is, you know, systemic, right? It's like, we don't have um, like childcare built into our system. You know, we don't, parents don't have that kind of support, you know, in other countries, like in France, for example, they have, you know, childcare from the time a child is very, very young, you know, there's paid parental leave and then there's free childcare through the government and then, you know, into public school. And so you don't have this sort of gap of like, oh my God, what are we going to do and how are we going to afford it? And, you know, does someone need to stay home or go back to work or, you know, like all of these questions that we have to ask ourselves here because there is no, um, there is no help. There is no assistance with childcare for, for many, you know, most people really. Um, so I think there need to be systemic changes to, to that effect. And, you know, I'm just trying to figure out personally in the absence of that, like what I can do to create more balance for myself in my life. I'm probably a unique case in that, or not unique, but, you know, um, not the most common case, although I know many people are having children later in life. Um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people at my age are, are probably have older kids, but there are many of us who also are, are trying to deal with, you know, having young children at this stage of life and career and, dealing with, you know, body changes and aging and all of that stuff and then aging parents, like, you know, the sandwich generation generation sort of effect. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. And so, yeah, I just, I feel like for me and for maybe many people who are in a similar boat, I think something we could really use more of is just like, really, I mean, I said balance, but I think really it's like help. <laughs> I need help, you know, managing it all and finding and, you know, getting back into a sense of balance. Absolutely. I wish you all the support and help and balance in the world. <laughs> Thank um, you. It's a, it's a tricky stage. You're not alone. I can definitely tell you that. I, I've met a lot of people who, you know, had kids later in life and, and do find it maybe a little bit trickier than mm-hmm. those of us um, who started a little earlier, just for different reasons. But it, it often is that um, the challenge in finding the balance. So yeah. 
Thank you once again, Christy. Um, I appreciate your time and it's been lovely to chat with you. Thank you, Jen. You too. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Midlife Feast. For more non-diet health, hormone, and general midlife support, click the link in the show notes to learn how you can work and learn from me. And if you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, please consider leaving a review or subscribing because it helps other women just like you find us and feel supported in midlife.